Father, Lord, I come before you tonight. I want to thank you, Father, for the opportunity to preach, Father. And Lord, I know, Father, that no matter what I have to say, it's not worthy of the attention of anyone unless it comes from your word, Father. And Lord, what I have to say is not worthy of attention, Father, unless I speak it by your power, Father, and to honor you for the right purpose, Father, with the right motive. And I just pray, Father, that you would purify my heart, Father, and Lord, that you would give me the ability to present a message, Father, that people need to hear because it comes from your word. And it's something, Father, that affects my life and that affects all of our lives. I just pray for your ability, Father, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Abraham was stunned. Yet there was no mistaking the voice of the Lord. He had heard it far too many times for that. And he had learned the hard time what happened when he disobeyed it. Every time he thought of Ishmael living in the, alone in the wilderness with his mother, he was reminded of the consequences of disobeying the voice of the Lord. Every time he saw his family and his flocks and his servants, he remembered the blessings that came from obeying that same voice. But this test was greater, more difficult. It seemed as if obedience to this would even take away the blessings that God had already given, would go against the promises that God had made. But he knew that God could not and would not ever contradict himself. And the Bible does not record any doubt on his part. But even his faith couldn't make this test easy. It was the ultimate test. No one else knew. God had come to Abraham alone. Not even the servants that went with him knew. Not Sarah, and not until the very end did even Isaac know. He would face this trial alone. For three long days and three endless nights, the almost intolerable burden of what was about to happen would be his alone. Rising early the next morning, he loaded his pack mule and chose two of his most trusted servants, he woke the still slumbering Isaac and told his wife he would be back in about a week's time. For three days they walked down dirt roads and across streams and across rivers and up and down mountains. On that third day, Abraham could see in the distance the place that God had told him to go. It was time for the last question, the ultimate question on the ultimate test, and he answered it. Calling to Isaac, he told the servants to wait until their return as they began the ascent up the mountain God had specified. Isaac bowed his shoulders as Abraham placed on them the heavy load of wood necessary to completely consume a large animal. In his hands he carried the coals he had saved from the fire of their last night's encampment. And in his, hand he car in his other hand he carried a large knife, large enough to kill a full-sized bull or his son. For this was the test that God had given him. The God that had miraculously given him a son had now told him to sacrifice that same son. And he did not understand all that was going on, but he knew that God's promise of a seed through Isaac would be fulfilled even if he had to raise up Isaac from the ashes. Raise him from the dead. Dead like he was going to be in only a few more minutes. The youthful voice of his son intruded on the heavy meditations of the father. Where was the sacrifice? All else was prepared. In words more prophetic than even Abraham could possibly know, he told his son that God himself would provide the sacrifice. No words tell us of what passed between Abraham and his son after that. 
But the next thing the scripture records is that Isaac was stretched on the altar on top of the wood, bound and helpless. His old arm trembling, Abraham raised the knife. Many times he had used it to sacrifice before to God, but never before had it cut so close to his heart. He closed his eyes that he would not see the dreadful wound the knife would make after he aimed it with the skill brought about by a lifetime of practice. It was then he heard a voice out of heaven, a voice he still knew well, a voice that froze his hand on the knife, a voice that changed everything. It was God. And Abraham had passed the test. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verse 11. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So I began to study this passage. I, I tried to figure out a way to preach it without taking the time to understand verse 12. Because verse 12 at first does not seem to make much sense. However, the more that I studied it, I realized that it is absolutely impossible to understand the meaning of this passage for us today or the meaning of it at all without understanding verse 12. Without knowing what it means, we will miss the entire point of the passage, what it meant to Abraham and ultimately what it means to us today. We all know that Abraham didn't test Abraham, God didn't test Abraham to try to figure out whether Abraham had faith or not. God, God already had said back in chapter 18 that I know that Abraham fears me and I know that Abraham doesn't only fear me, I know that Abraham will teach his children and his grandchildren to fear me. God wasn't searching for information. Nor was God trying to have Abraham's faith put on display to the nation so that he could really show how much faith Abraham had because no one else even knew what Abraham went through. Only Abraham and Isaac knew. Until the book of Genesis was written... We have no information that anyone besides these two even knew the story. Why then did God test Abraham? If it wasn't for those reasons, why did he say, Now I know that you fear me, Abraham? What does that mean? The reason that God declared a new knowledge of Abraham's faith is because Abraham had shown a new fear of God for God to take knowledge of. Let me say that again. It wasn't that God was, you know, having this new understanding of the faith that Abraham already had. It's that Abraham had a new faith for God to take knowledge of. Abraham had shown a new level of obedience that wasn't there before. God could not declare Abraham's faith until Abraham demonstrated it because until Abraham demonstrated it, it did not exist. God's purpose in testing Abraham was to develop the faith in Abraham's life necessary for Abraham to develop, pardon me, to fulfill God's purposes. You see, Abraham's whole life was a series of tests that developed his faith to the point where he could fulfill his God-given role as the father of the faithful. Some of those tests he passed and some of those tests he failed. 
But this was the ultimate test that Abraham faced. And you'd think, as we think of tests of faith, and we think of people that have had great faith, we may think of someone who went to the jungles to be a missionary to the pagans, to the cannibals. But people have gone to the cannibals that were not missionaries. And people have gone to the cannibals as missionaries for faiths that were not biblical, that had no power of God upon them. Or we might think of Abraham's greatest test of faith, perhaps, as when he, with 318 men, he chased down an entire army and destroyed it. But people have defeated armies against great odds without any assistance from God. The greatest test of Abraham's faith didn't come in this big public open way where everybody could see and say, Oh, Abraham, you have this great faith. No, it came when Abraham was alone, when no one else knew what he was going through. No one else could help him. In fact, Abraham could have ignored what God said and no one else would even have known. He could have ignored what God had told him and come back to church if he had been in today's world and come back to church the next day and smiled and no one would have looked weird at him because no one else would have known what God had told him to do that he had ignored. It was between God and Abraham. But in order for, God to de- in order for Abraham to develop great faith, he was going to have to go through great trials. You know, in many ways, uh, strength training has some similarities to the way that God builds our faith. And I was reading an article a a couple of years back, and it's possible to get stronger without exercise. It really is. They did a study that was a very carefully controlled, very widely based test. And there was people that they decided to test arm strength, and they had a machine that tested it perfectly. And they told people every day to spend, I believe it was 15 minutes, visualizing themselves exercising. They were to go through in their mind without moving their arms, sitting in their easy chair. They were to think very intensely about what it would be like if they were lifting weights. And it was, I believe, at the end of about six months, they tested them again. And lo and behold, it was, again, enough people to account for it. They had not been exercising. And they were about 13% stronger by thinking and visualizing their exercise. But I have news for you today. God wasn't interested in making Abraham developing 13% more faith in Abraham. God was interested in developing great faith in Abraham. God was interested in Abraham being the father of the faithful. God God was interested in building in Abraham the same kind of faith that saves us. The book of Galatians tells that it's the same faith that Abraham had, the same faith that we must have today to be the children of God. And God isn't just interested in developing faith up to the point where we are saved and then after that He has no more faith He wants to develop in us. No, the Bible reveals that He wants to develop faith in us to the point where we become just like His Son, that God has no limits to the amount of faith that He wants to develop in your life, in your life, in my life, in all of our lives. And I do not think that anyone here would be so foolish as to imagine that a 13% increase in your faith would make you like Jesus Christ. Because God wants to build great faith in our lives, just as He wanted to build great faith in the life of Abraham, God is going to have to bring us through great trials just as He brought Abraham through great trials. Because not only are great trials the only way to demonstrate great faith, They are also the only way to develop it. And what does it look like in our lives when God brings us through a great trial? 
He's not going to ask us to sacrifice our children because in the, in the, in the remainder, in the Mosaic law, God expressed very clearly that was against his revealed will. God had not yet expressed that to Abraham. So God is not going to use that as a test or a trial for you today. And I don't think that anyone would be so foolish as to expect that either anyways. But what kind of, what does testing look in our lives? It's not going to be a great test of faith to have great faith. You don't need to go be a missionary to the cannibals. You don't have to be a preacher to have great faith. In fact, there have been many people who have preached with no faith at all. There have been preachers who have not even been saved. There are preachers from many different religions. Being a Christian leader does not automatically give you a pass and now you have great faith. Nor are trials only for great leaders. Because God does not have any first, second, and third class citizens. God is interested in all of His children developing faith. God is interested in all of His children becoming like His Son. He has only one standard, not many. And Abraham's trial that he went through does not only tell us that God is going to test us, it gives us many clues on how he is going to test us. God is going to test us by seeming to take what we want the most. Because, you see, when obedience and desire are on the same path and serving God matches what we want to do, it is not easy, nor is it even possible, to determine which one we are truly following and which one matters the most to us. You see, you could desire adventure and say you're obeying a call to the mission field. You could desire fame and say you're desiring to be a great preacher, to preach the message that God has. You could have many false motivations for many things that many men and many women would consider great service to God. But when God brings a trial, God looks at what you want the most. God looks at what we have most at heart and tests us on that point. God looks at what won't affect our reputation and tests us on that point. God looks at what we would have no possibility of false motivation to obey. He comes to us there. And I don't know what God will put you through and I don't know what God will put me through. But I've thought of a, through, a few examples that, that would show in real life what this might look like. Perhaps you struggled to rise in a company for years. And you've asked God, you, want, you know that God wants you to be more involved in faith promised missions or more involved in some form of ministry in a financial sort of way, but you do not have the money to do it. You barely have the money to pay your bills. And you're offered a promotion that will almost double your salary. It won't keep you out of church services. And it won't take you away from church. And everyone says... Wow, what a great opportunity. But you know, and only you know, the compromising position that taking that promotion is going to place you in. You know, and only you know, what the consequences of that are going to be. And what choice will you make? No one else knows. 
No one else knows enough about what's going on to tell you don't do it. But you know what God wants you to do. Or perhaps you know, and this is something that's... Perhaps you know that God has marriage for you and you know that in order to fulfill God's purposes, you need to be married... And, and God brings, you, you, someone comes into your life that's a Christian, that seems to be perfect, that fulfills all of your requirements. But you know something that spoils everything. You know they don't really have a walk with God. You know something about them that no one else knows. And you know it's not God's will. But no one else knows that it's not God's will. There's no obvious reason why it's not. What will you do then? Or perhaps you're in secular college or you're a student in high school or you're, you're in some university or some academic setting and you're asked to write a paper or, or do some sort of work or it could even be in a business field and you know that what you were taught is against God and against the Bible and you write your paper with the information you were given and you know that as a Christian you should put a sticky note or you should put something in your paper that tells you don't agree with it, that what this is teaching is wrong. But no one else at church, none of your Christian friends would know if you just turned it in and acted like you believed everything that you were taught. What will you do then? What would I do then? Because what we do then is what determines if the obedience and the faith that we profess is real, is genuine. What we do when no one else knows. What we do when the knife of God's testing cuts right into our heart. Is what determines whether we truly do fear God. It's what builds the fear of God that will enable us to fulfill the purposes of God. But this, isn't, this is not a call to go out and seek trials for yourself. A self-administered test is not a God-given one. The test of faith always comes from God. And it always only has one answer. And that one answer is obedience. And it is only when obedience and desire are headed in opposite directions that it is possible to determine which has priority in our life. The next time that obedience seems impossible, that obedience to what God has told you to do seems to cost too much, remember that God has a purpose for trials in our life. God does not send trials into the lives of believers just because He wants to, feel, he wants to see us go through pain. God does not allow trials in the lives of believers just because trials are part of life. No, when a trial comes into the life of a believer, God has revealed very clearly that he has a purpose for it. And the only answer to a trial is to obey God and to trust him and to realize that his promises will be fulfilled no matter what. No matter how impossible it seems, it is always right to do right. No matter how impossible it seems, it is always and only right to obey God. Because you have no idea what the consequences of disobedience could possibly be. Abraham had no idea when he disobeyed God before and Ishmael was born. He had no way of knowing the millennia of pain and suffering that one act of disobedience would bring about. 
not in his own life only, but in the lives of his children and his great-grandchildren. And in our lives today, we are still suffering from the time that Abraham did not obey God. From the time that Abraham did not trust God. And I believe, I don't know if everyone here is a believer or not, but I must tell the sad news that if you are not a believer, or if you profess to be a believer, if you profess to be a child of God and you are not, that the trials in your life, unless they bring you to Christ, have no purpose. It is only in the lives, it is only in the life of a child of God that the things that we go through have meaning. And I, I, I don't know if anyone here is unsaved, but I would be very much amiss to preach a message without including, without telling you that if you are not saved, this message does not apply to you. If you are not saved, the trials and the burdens that you go through are just a part of life. But for the believer, the trials and the sufferings that we go through have meaning. And the trials and the sufferings and the tests that God gives us have a purpose. And when a trial comes our way and we know that we are believers, instead of being completely crushed by it, we can rejoice because God has a reason for giving it to us and God has a purpose for sending it to us and that purpose is a good purpose because God only has good purposes for His children and we can trust God and we can love God and we can even rejoice in the midst of whatever God sends us and we can obey without doubting and we can know that when we come out the other side of that trial, if we have obeyed, we have glorified God. If we have obeyed, we have accomplished the purpose that God intended. If we have exercised the faith that Abraham once exercised, the faith that may still be an inspiration to us today, to the trials that we face every day, to the trials that we will face in the future. Father, Lord, I come before you, and Father, I just thank you, Lord, for how wonderful you are. And I thank you, Father, for your beauty, Father. And I thank you, Father, Lord, that because of you, we can have joy. And because of you, Father, we can have joy amidst any circumstance. And we can thank you and we can praise you and we can love you, Father, because of who you are. Just pray, Father, Lord, that you would bless this message, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for any pride that I have, Father. Lord, forgive me for the pride that I do have. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us all to love you. And Father, to thank you for everything that you do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.